0: So, yeah, my dad never said any of those things. Like, I mean, he, I would oftentimes leave the door open like that last one, and he would say, well, were you born in a barn? And he would always say that, or Sean, I brought you into the world, I can take you out of it. Oh, yeah, he loved that line. He loved that line. And, well, I actually got to visit him the past few days. Um, he lives in, I'm from Buffalo, New York, so my family's still up there, and I appreciate you guys keeping it nice and cool here. It reminds me of Buffalo. Um, But, you know, thinking about temperature, thinking about temperature in here, would you consider yourself a thermostat type of person or more of like a thermometer type of person? Like, are you somebody that changes the world around you or are you someone that kind of just adapts to the world, the, the environment in which you are in? You, are, are you a thermostat type of person or a thermometer type of person? Like if you're at work and you know, people are being negative and everyone's kind of grumbling, complaining over what's going on, does that affect you and that kind of brings you down? Or do you bring a joy and a peace to the office that brings everybody up, kind of changes the environment in which you are in? You know, are you a thermostat type of person or are you a thermometer type of person? Uh, a young man I met recently illustrates to me and kind of exemplifies to me what it means to be a, a thermostat type of person. So I live out in in Centerville, work at a place at the end zone um, in Chantilly, and I was driving home um, from working out one day at this gym, the end zone, and I was stuck in an intersection, a major intersection at at Stonecroft and Westfields, and it was a sunny Saturday afternoon. You know, I didn't think people would be in a rush, but all of a sudden we're there, I'm there at a red light, and all of a sudden people are honking. People are like laying on their horns, like honking. I'm like, what is the deal? Like, it's Saturday, like, and that doesn't, it's not how it works. Like, you don't honk, and all of a sudden it changes, like... Stop honking people. But people keep on honking. And and then eventually the the green arrow comes for those who are turning, and people start turning left in my direction. And I see people, they're hanging out their window waving. And I'm like, who are they waving at? And then all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this. Let's take a look at this video. Yeah, it's just this, this is young man just out there dancing. And I'm like, man, i got to get to know this guy because I, I'm, I actually like to dance. Like, I'm not very good, but I like to dance. I'm like, i got to learn some of this moves from these guys. So I go home, and I hop on my bike, and, and I go up to him, and I say, hey, man, what's your story? Like, what, what's your name, and, and, and why are you out here? And, well, this is what he told me. Watch this. I do it to put smiles on people's faces. I love to see people driving out, and when they have a problem or a bad day, they smile at me. And when they see me doing the latest moves, it's great. People look at me like I'm—I brighten up their day, and that's what I do with it. For. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's my that's my friend Chris, my new friend Chris. He graduated from Westfield's High School, not far from where where I live, and. My, my friends that have actually spent time with him actually went to school with him. They're like, Yeah, that's Chris. Like, when people would get into fights, he would get in the middle of them and separate them. And just, he would always brought just light to our darkness in our school. And, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. How can we, as followers of Jesus, be people who are thermostats that change the environment in which we are in? And, and I'm going to talk about it coming from the uh, kind of a point of view and how Jesus, he calls us to be enthusiastic. He calls us to be enthusiastic. Now, now, what does it mean to be enthusiastic? Now, that's a question that I was wrestling with recently. And, and, and so I said, I want to be more enthusiastic. Like there are people in my life that are just always smiling, always happy. I'm like, I want to be more like them. Well, how, how, what is that all about? Was well, I studied the word enthusiasm, I, I began to see that it's not an emotion. I always thought like enthusiasm was like an emotion, and maybe some people with, you know, a certain personality might have more enthusiasm than others, and, you know, there are some people that are more just melancholy and they're not as enthusiastic, so we don't have any hope of doing that. But I found out that enthusiasm is not an emotion. See, if, if we break the word up, we actually go back to etymology, it actually literally means to be possessed by a God. Enthusiasm means living possessed, and so it's not an emotion. But it's a power proceeding from a God-filled heart. Enthusiasm is allowing yourself to be led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in you and through you to change the world around you. That that is what enthusiasm is. And and it allows us to live out the words of Paul in Colossians 3.23 when he says this, Hey, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. And in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, he encourages us, hey, whatever you're going through, whether you've maybe lost someone recently, you've gone through a hard time, you're sick, he says, whatever's going on, he says, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Yeah. And, and two guys that exemplify what it means to be enthusiastic were two of Jesus' followers, Peter and John. And we see them living out this enthusiasm shortly after Jesus rose from the dead. They're still living in Jerusalem. They're, they're figuring out, okay, they're, how, do we, how do we follow Jesus here? And, well, as, as it became their custom, as their rhythm, they would go to the temple to pray every day. And in Acts chapter 3, we see them going to the temple. And, and there, as they're about to enter into the temple, they see a, a man that is crippled, that is lame. He can't walk. He's paralyzed. He, he's been put there to beg, he's been put there every day to beg for money and and they see him and they kind of feel sorry for him but they realize that that he doesn't need another handout but he he needs a hand up and so they look at this man and, and peter says hey silver and gold i do not have but what i do have i give to you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth get up and walk and he picks the man up, and the man comes to his feet, and he begins his legs begin to shake, and all of a sudden he starts dancing he 's having a great time he 's running around he's doing he's I, it actually doesn 't say that in the Greek, but it says he 's running around it says he 's running around, he 's jumping up and down, praising the Lord, so if that 's not dancing like i don't know i don't know what it is, but he 's going nuts, he 's going crazy, and then everybody in the temple's like, "Wait a minute, what just happened like that guy he can't walk, and now he's jumping around dancing. And so they go. They rush to Peter and John and say, how did you do that? Like, 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 What power do you possess? And they say, it wasn't us. It's not us. And you remember Jesus, the guy who you put on a cross not too long ago? Yeah, maybe you should reconsider who he is because he was the one who healed this guy. And while they start preaching about Jesus, enter stage left, the party poopers. You know, the religious leaders, you know, it's like Darth Vader and the stormtroopers. They come walking in like, dun, 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 They come in, and they're like, oh no, not this again. These people talking about Jesus, the resurrection. And so they arrest Peter and John. They're like, they, we can't let this go on anymore. And so they arrest Peter and John, they hold them for trial the next day, and then they bring them out before the Sanhedrin, the, basically the Jewish Supreme Court. And they, they go to Peter and John and say, hey, by what power or in what name have you done this? And I think Peter's probably like, do you really want to know? Are you sure? Do you really want to know? And so verse 8, Luke says this. He says, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel now by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And the Sanhedrin, they can't believe it. They, they take a step back and they're like, what? Like, who, who are these guys? These guys are like normal, ordinary people, and yet they're standing up to us? Now, number one, how do they know the scripture? How can they quote scripture and, and understand who this Jesus as Messiah guy is? And, but the, the audacity, the, the audacity, the boldness. They're, you know, Sanhedrin isn't used to people sticking their guns and just saying, oh, you don't want us to preach? Okay, we won't. No, but, but standing boldly to their ground saying, well, we will continue to preach about Jesus. You no, know, what, what set them apart? How'd they have that boldness? How'd they have that power to stand up and continue to preach about Jesus in that pressure cooker situation? Well, Luke says it was because of the Holy Spirit. It was because the Holy Spirit filled them in that moment. And it wasn't that the Holy Spirit didn't already dwell in them, but in that moment when they desperately needed Him, the Holy Spirit showed up and showed off. And the same Holy Spirit that empowered Peter and John to be enthusiastic, to be a th- thermostat. There's the same Holy Spirit that lives in every si- inside, every side of- inside every believer, you and me. The problem is oftentimes most days we live our lives on, own, our, on our, our power, right? You know, most days we don't go about our days saying, hey, we're going to take a risk. We're, we're going to do something daring. And, and if God doesn't show up, we're going to be in trouble. No, most days, I'll admit, I get by on my own strength. I don't, I don't attempt anything that I can't do on my own, right? It's like I'm driving the car and the Holy Spirit's in the back seat saying, well, you've got this. You've got this. You're in control. You can do all these things that you're attempting to do today. But if you take risk, if you do something that only I can do through you, then I will show up and I will show off. But oftentimes I just play it safe and I miss out on the power that could be displayed in my life through the Holy Spirit. Helen Keller, she once reflected on life saying this. She said that life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. And I don't know if if life is always that way, but I do know following Jesus is that way. That following Jesus is either a daring adventure or nothing at all, because he didn't play it safe, but he told us to take risks and to trust him. Another person in Scripture who knew that following God is a daring adventure or nothing at all is a guy named King David. Probably most of us probably have heard the story of, of David versus Goliath. You probably didn't have to even be raised in Sunday school to know this story. You just have to turn on ESPN, right? And you hear uh, of the David versus Goliath stories. And so I don't need to tell the whole story. But in, in 1 Samuel 17, we see Israel and the Philistines, they're squared off. They're toe-to-toe. They're, they're at battle. They're at war. And we see that they have sent out, the, the Philistines have sent out their giant, their champion Goliath, and say, we don't all need to fight. Just send out your greatest champion, and we will fight one-on-one, mano-a-mano. Whoever wins, wins the battle, wins the war. But of course, there aren't any Israelites who stand a chance. There aren't any Israelites who have the heart, the guts to take on Goliath. And so they're just at the standstill for many days. And that's when David, who was just a shepherd boy, his father says, Hey, why don't you go check on your older brothers? His three older brothers were in the army. David's just maybe a teenage boy, 13-year-old boy. Maybe we don't know. He's a small boy and say, why why don't you go check on your brothers? Why don't you go take them some food and bring back a report of how things are going? And so David packs up his things, he heads to the battle line, and when he's there, he sees what's going on. He he hears Goliath talking smack about Israel and their God and saying, you don't have a God. Our God is more powerful than yours. And man, David is upset by this. He's like, how can this giant challenge our God? They they, they worship a false God. Their God isn't real. He's challenging us. Who's going to shut him up? And David's brothers are like, David, go home. Take your juice boxes and go home, David. Like, like you don't belong here. You don't belong here. You're just a boy. Talking about facing off against Goliath. What are you talking about? He says, if no one else will, I will. If no one else will, I will, he says. And he's serious. And so he goes to the king. He goes to Saul and says, hey, if and if nobody is going to take on Goliath, I will do it because I'm not scared. I, I, I'm not afraid. And, and Saul says, you don't stand a chance, David. You don't stand a chance. He says, yeah, I did, probably didn't stand a chance when a lion and a bear attacked my sheep. But now they think twice when they come and attack my sheep. Why? Because I drive them up. Not because I'm special or because I'm powerful, because God is with me in the same way that he is going to be with me and empowering me when I face off against Goliath. And so Saul's like, well, we don't have any other options. So David, take your best shot. Go and do it. And so David, he gets five stones. He puts it in his pouch. He goes up to Goliath. And he goes to Goliath, and he just looks at him in the eyes. And he just starts talking smack. He just starts talking trash. He says, hey, Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Like, Like, can you imagine, like, your 13-year-old son or, like, grandson doing that? Like, Shaq on steroids? Like, yeah, what you got? But he doesn't stop. He's like in Goliath. And why don't you go, why don't you tell your friends? He says, this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I mean, he's bold. He's powerful, but Goliath, he's not scared. He's kind of laughs. He gets ready to crush David, and that's when David reaches into his pouch, picks out that rock, puts it in his sling. Sling goes round and round, and shoots it right at his forehead. Hits him square in the head, and down goes Goliath. Knocks him out. Is he dead? I don't know. David doesn't know. He's not about to take any chances. And so he grabs Goliath's sword and just chops off his head. Then he stands over Goliath's body and looks at the Philistine army and says, who's next? Who who wants a piece of me? And nobody does. They all run and they retreat. And David wins the battle, not because he was some powerful warrior, but because God was with him, because the Holy Spirit was inside of him, empowering him to do what he couldn't do on his own. And that same Holy Spirit that lived inside of Peter and John and David lives inside of every one of us who are following following Jesus. And, and perhaps we can relate to David's story because we see at, at a young age that he's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, that he's enthusiastic. He's a, he's a thermostat, but, you know, later on in his life, he kind of loses his enthusiasm. It begins to drain. But, but before it begins to drain, we, we see he continues to be a man led by the Holy Spirit. After, he, after many years, he becomes king, and he conquers Jerusalem. It had been a Jebusite city, an enemy city. He had conquered it. He says, this is going to be the capital. This is going to be my capital. And you know what's missing? It's the Ark of the Covenant. He says, we need the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with his people. Several years ago, the Philistines had arknapped it. They, they had taken it, and they, they, it had gone to Philistine territory. It had come back to Israel, but it wasn't in Jerusalem. So David said, we need to get the Ark back. We need to get the ark back. And so he sends these people, and they come, and they get the ark. And then David leads this processional into the city of Jerusalem. And as they get the ark back to Jerusalem, do you know what David does? Yeah, he dances. He he dances. He throws off his outer garment, and he just starts dancing. He starts having a party. He's like, woo, we got the ark back. And he's having a blast. And all, all these slave girls, this huge crowd gathers, you know, And they're like, ooh, Instagram that, oh, put that on Facebook, I'm going to get a lot of likes. They're they're having a great time. Everybody, but David's wife, right? David's wife's looking out the window like, David, I can't believe I married that guy. Like, what a fool, what a fool. And and, and so David comes home that night, and she goes, David, tonight? You made a fool of yourself, and you embarrassed me. What do you got to say about yourself? And David says, honey, I will become even more undignified than this. I will be even more humiliated in, in my own eyes and everybody's eyes in order to celebrate what God has done in bringing the ark back. I will be more enthusiastic because of celebrating what God has done here. He wasn't, a, he wasn't afraid. He wasn't worried about what other people thought about him. Why? Because he was being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, just a couple chapters later, a few chapters later in Second Samuel chapter eleven, we see this man who was once led by the Holy Spirit, f- f- filled with enthusiasm. All of a sudden, he his enthusiasm begins to wane. We'll, we'll kind of look at that and see why. Second Samuel chapter eleven verse one says this: that in the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. And so he sends all of, his ba- all of his officers, all of his warriors out to fight, but he, he stays home. And then it says, verse 2, One evening David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It's like, yeah, David, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's someone else's wife. Like Uriah, the guy who's risking his neck for you on the battlefield. Like it, it's his wife. So so, just move on. Don't don't give it a second thought. But he's not being led by the spirit. He's being led by the flesh. And and so instead of saying, oh, that's someone else's wife, he says, oh, well, I guess I guess she must be lonely then, right? And oh, you know, maybe someone needs to comfort her. And so he sends his servants. To bring her home, in verse 4 says this David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. And all of a sudden, in David's story, it goes from this like Hollywood, Disney, the little guy always beating the big guy, to this Jerry Springer show. Like, like his, <laughs> his family literally, I mean, I'm not joking. Like you read it, and his family just falls apart, and there's rebellion, there is rape. There is murder. It's just conflict after conflict after conflict in David's family, in David's life. And his enthusiasm begins to fade. And, and we could, you know, kind of blame him and say, well, why were you on the roof? And why were you looking where you shouldn't have been looking? And, and why, why did you give it a second thought? And, well, the decision that led to his demise was not the decision to walk on the roof that night. It was, it was made weeks before. It was made weeks before when he didn't go to battle with his troops. Because that was his calling in life. God had called him to be Israel's general, their leader, their warrior. And instead of focusing on his calling, he began to focus on his comfort. He began to play it safe, and his enthusiasm began to drain. I'll, I'll put it this way. That, that David's enthusiasm faded when he focused on his comfort rather than his calling. Yeah, let me say that again. David's enthusiasm faded when he focused on his comfort rather than his calling. And Craig Rochelle, an author, he he describes David's tragic transition this way. He says, as a kid, he ran into battle to serve his God. But as a king, he walked the roof of his house to serve his comfort. Yeah, that's the same thing that is true in our lives, that our enthusiasm will fade when we focus on our comfort rather than our calling. So let me just ask you this, like, like where is your focus today? Is it on your comfort or is it on your calling? Like, are you more focused on saving for retirement as opposed to investing in God's kingdom with your time, your talents, and your treasures? Are you more focused on your kids liking you than you are with helping them follow Jesus? Are you more focused on what you can get from your marriage as opposed to what you can give to your marriage and invest in your relationship with your spouse? Are you more focused on what other people think about you than you are with looking for opportunities to share your faith with your friends and your neighbors and your, and your co-workers? Are you more focused on your comfort or are you more focused on your, on your calling? And the one thing I love about David's story is even though he begins to focus on his comfort and he forgets what his calling is about, God brings him back. And, and God says, hey, I want you to get your enthusiasm back. And God wants us to get our enthusiasm back. Because maybe, maybe you can relate to David's story. Maybe you can say, man, there was once a time in my life where like, I had that aha moment. I had that, that come to Jesus moment. I was on fire. Right? Maybe it was in high school. Maybe it was in college. Maybe it was sometime in your life. And you were like, I had this fire that was burning inside of me. But I kind of lost it. And I want it back. How, how do we get it back? How do we get our enthusiasm back? Well, Jesus actually tells us how to get it back in Revelation chapter two. In Revelation chapter two, Jesus is speaking to a church in the city of Ephesus. He's speaking to these Christians who had been following Jesus for some time now. And when they first encountered Jesus and they, they first heard about the grace that they could have with God through Jesus, say, Man, they were on fire. And, and they loved Jesus and they were they were taking risks and they were giving their lives for the for the sake, but then well, life just happened. And they started suffering persecution. And they they began to lose their enthusiasm. And so Jesus speaks to them in in Revelation chapter 2 saying this. He says, hey, but I have this against you. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. He he had said, hey, you, you guys are really good in your theology. Like, I appreciate the fact that you did not give up when persecution came your way, but you have lost your first love. He says, repent and do what you did at first. And so let me ask you that. W- what did you do at first? Like when you had that aha moment, when you first came to Christ, when you were first on fire, what were you doing? W- were you maybe giving of your time and your talents and your treasures to the kingdom and-, and serving here at church or maybe spending a little bit more time reading your Bible or blasting worship music in the car, singing loud for all to hear, and it didn't matter like when people in the car next to you are like, what is wrong with that person, right? Well, right, because you were on fire. Maybe you went on a missions trip. Maybe you supported a compassion child. Well, what were you doing? Repent. Turn back and do what you did at first, Jesus says. And see, so that's what actually David did. You know, One of David's calling was to be a warrior. But far before, before he ever was a warrior, he was a songwriter. He was a worship leader. And he cultivated this enthusiasm with God as a shepherd boy on the hills in Jerusalem writing worship music. He was such an incredible worship leader that King Saul, when he would be going through hard times, depression, anxiety, Saul would say, hey, bring that shepherd boy in and let him play the harp for me. David was a, a thermostat. And he, would, he would lift the king's spirit through his worship music. And, and so after he, he repents and, he, and he, he needs to turn back to do what he did at first, what does he do? He writes worship music. He, he writes Psalm 51 in which he says this. He says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And he continues to write. He writes in Psalm 32, 11, And he says, hey, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You righteous ones, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You know, he wrote 32 after he had written 51, as he begins to get the enthusiasm back. As he begins to be led by the Holy Spirit by doing what he did at first. And, and so what did you do at first? Return to it. Take a risk. Don't play it safe. Does anybody know whose picture this is? Well put a picture up. See if you know whose picture this is. Anyone anybody know whose picture that is? Anybody know? There you go. I heard it. Katie Ledecky. That's Katie Ledecky. Long-distance swimmer. Arguably one of the world's most dominant athletes today. Because when she swims, like, she doesn't just, like, win or compete. Like, she dominates. Like, like she's finishing the race and people are stu- still doing flip turns at the other end of the pool. Like, it's not even close. Not even a contest. And wh- what sets her apart, it- it- it's not her stroke. It's not like she has a better stroke than anybody. It's not that she's taller than anybody. It's not that she's stronger than the other swimmers. It's her mindset and her conditioning that sets her apart. You see, several years ago, when she started, started really um, getting into swimming and started training at a young age, she just said, you know what? While other swimmers, while, while they're going to be focused on starting really fast, getting out of the blocks fast, and then they're going to pace themselves and then give their all at the end, she said, I'm just going to start fast, I'm going to stay fast, I'm going to finish fast. And, and once she was asked you know, why she had this strategy, this mentality, she said this. She says, it's because I'm always afraid that I'm going to get to the end of the race and have too much energy left. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'm afraid that one day I'm going to get to the end of my race and I'm going to realize that I have too much energy left, that I had more to give, that there was a power, a resource at my disposal that I didn't tap into. Why? Because I, I played it safe because i was conservative and i didn't trust god and i just relied on my own strength my own power i pray that that won't be true of us but we would be enthusiastic and we would trust god and we would depend on him to show up and show off i got one more story and then i'll wrap up so landon gilkey was a professor of theology at the university of chicago for many years after he retired teaching theology in the University of Chicago, actually came down to our area and lectured at schools like UVA and Georgetown. Um, but before he went into life as a professor, he traveled to China in the year 1940 um, in order to teach English. And, and he went to China as a, a human secularist, meaning he didn't really believe in God. He believed sin was all just this human construct, and we could be the, kind of our own saviors, the solutions to our own problems. But if you know history, the Japanese had recently invaded China, and eventually they got to where Langdon was, and they, they sent him to an internment camp. And in this internment camp, he began to see like, how evil people are. He, began to, he actually wrote it down in a book called The Shengtong Compound, where he begins to describe how he started believing in sin again, because in the in this internment camp people just it was deplorable living conditions like 2000 people shared 20 toilets it was it was disgusting it was dirty people were sick and everybody he said looked out for number 1 everybody was selfish prideful and everybody de- didn't matter who you were whether you were a christian missionary or whether you're an atheist everybody had their own rationale for why they were looking out for themselves he says but there was one exception there, there was one guy there that was different than everybody else, and his name was Eric. And, and he describes Eric this way. He says, Often in an evening I would see him bent over a chessboard or a mile boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these pent-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint but he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. And if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you know who Eric is. His name is Eric Little. And he won a gold medal in the 1924 Olympics in Paris in the 400-meter dash, even though he wasn't even a 400-meter runner. He, he was a 100-meter runner, a sprinter. And well, when he found out that the, 100 meters was going to, the qualifying heats for the 100 meters was taking place on a Sunday... He said, oh, that's all right. I'll let someone else run, it, run that race. And I'll just try my hand at the 400. Because he said, Sunday's the day that's reserved for worship and, and for rest. And, and so he ends up winning this, this gold medal in a race he really hardly wasn't even prepared for. And so everyone says, Eric, you're an incredible athlete. Like, you need to do this for, for like, your life. Like, you need to be an athlete and make a lot of money and take life easy. But he says, no. That's not my calling in life. My, my calling is not to be a runner. He would say over and over, that like, God has made me for China. He said, God has made me for China. And so that's why after he won a gold medal, he packed up his stuff and he headed to China to be a missionary. To help more people trust and follow Jesus. And, and, and there in that internment camp, you know, he actually got sick. He actually uh, started growing a brain tumor. But there weren't doctors there. He didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew he was really sick. But he chose, even, despite the fact that he was separated from his family, despite the fact that he was sick, that he could be light in that darkness. And unfortunately, he didn't make it out. He died of that brain tumor before the war ended. And, well, Gilkey describes the sentiment that was felt at the camp at the time of his death saying this. He says, the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So, so great was the vacuum that Eric's death, Left, And why was everybody so discouraged? It was because Eric was a man who wasn't focused on his comfort, but was focused on his calling. And that calling gave him purpose every single morning. He didn't wake up and say, yeah, everything's great. Like I couldn't have asked for a better living situation. No, he says, despite the sickness, despite the the enslavement in this camp, despite our circumstances, I can be a person that represents Jesus. That is, light in the darkness, because I have a purpose. And that's to help more people trust and follow Jesus. And so I don't know what your next step is when it comes to being a person of enthusiasm, light in the darkness. I mean, maybe for you, it is making the decision for the very first time to surrender your life to Christ. To to take that risk. To say, I need Jesus and to be baptized. To surrender your life to Him and to to imitate Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. To be filled with the Holy Spirit and then rely on his power for the rest of your life. Maybe for you it's to take a risk and to go on a missions trip or to volunteer at at a camp this summer. Maybe it's you to give sacrificially to this church or to a missionary. Maybe for you it's it's sharing your grace story. It's saying, hey, how can I share my two-minute testimony with people around me, people that I love? Maybe for you it is to dance, to dance and bring a light to the darkness. I don't know what it is for you, but I can almost guarantee that your next step is going to take you outside your comfort zone because it's only in those spaces, in those places in life, where we won't rely on our own strength, but we'll rely on his, and he'll show up, and he'll show off. Now, I know it's going to take some courage for us to do that this week, so would you allow me to pray for us and ask God to give us that courage, that strength this week? Heavenly Father, um, we do approach you and thank you the fact that you are our heavenly father who loves us who holds us and who wants us to grow who wants us to become strong in you um, but we know that oftentimes it's easy to to be scared and to live in fear um, but we ask that you would empower us through the power of your holy spirit to represent you to be light in the darkness to be people of enthusiasm And in that way, follow in the footsteps of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.